Why don't we open up with a, a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for this awesome, incredible opportunity to, to study your word, to study the letter that you have, through, uh, through some writer, left to us to encourage us, to uh, exhort us, to teach us, to train us up. And I pray, Father, that you will bless the next five weeks together so that we would discover what it means to experience this abundant life we have in you. These people, Father, they don't need to hear from me. They need to hear from you, just as I need to hear from you. And so we all confess our dependence upon you, Father, and allow you to do whatever you want to do in these next five weeks, starting tonight. And I pray at the end of it that we we don't leave here only with more information and knowledge and understanding about the book of Hebrews, but more importantly, Father, we leave here with a greater understanding of your heart and what your heart is towards us and understanding really what our heart is towards you in order that we might live and experience you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, why don't we dive in and we're going to jump in really with a review of the first seven chapters. So we got through the first seven chapters in the first part and then the next five weeks now, we're going we're gonna to do basically chapter 8 onward. So just as a bit of review then from the first seven chapters, uh, let's start with even a basic understanding of the book of Hebrews. But who wrote the book of Hebrews? Anyone know? If you do, you're pretty special because nobody knows. That's, it's the, you know, the, if you had the old King James Bible, they might say at the top of it, the epistle of Paul to the Hebrews. Uh, but yet no one knows who wrote this letter. They're just assuming it was Paul. Uh, there's been guesses from Barnabas to um, Priscilla to Luke to basically anyone and everyone that's uh, somebody's names mentioned in the New Testament, they will attribute it to it. Uh, we could attribute it to Bob if we want because, you know, why not? Um, I, I do have a suspicion, suspicion that it was written by Paul just based on the translation. You see a lot of the... The language, and, and it sounds a lot like Paul. However, when you look at the original Greek, you would swear it wasn't Paul. So I have a suspicion that it was written by Paul to the Hebrews in maybe Hebrew, but it was then translated by someone else, maybe Luke or, or someone else into Greek, and it's that Greek text that we have. And that might explain some of the, some of the language issues. But does it really matter who wrote the book of Hebrews? Because ultimately, who was the author? It was Father. Through his Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit through through whoever it was, so it doesn't really matter who wrote it. However, we do have some insight, I think, and and it's helpful to understand who the book was written to. This one's pretty straightforward, right? Anyone want to venture a guess? Step, go it on a limb, risk it. Who was it written to? Wrong. Come on, really? Yeah, of course, Hebrews is written to Jews, but not just any Hebrews, but Hebrews that were believers, so Christians that happened to be Jewish. And I suspect it was written to the, the Hebrews, the Christian Hebrews, in the city of Jerusalem. And that, that is helpful, I think, when you start to understand a little bit about their background, their history. And it is kind of um, expressed uh, more so in the letter itself. I mean, there's no opening line and no opening introduction as to who it's written to and what's going on. 
Uh, it doesn't say to the Hebrews in Jerusalem, but I, I suspect based on what's going on and what the writer is talking about in the letter, it was probably written to the Hebrews in Jerusalem because in there they were going through extreme um, persecution. Um, but I want you to understand that these people were genuine believers. That's important because as we're going to go through, as we've gone through in the past, as we continue to go through this part, understanding who the book was written to, uh, there is some debate, was this talking to a believer or unbeliever? Well, the reality is he was addressing Christians. He was addressing believers, people who were publicly baptized. Uh, he mentions that in the letter. These were not new Christians. In, uh, in chapter 5, he says, by now you ought to be teachers. So these are not baby Christians. These are people who have been Christians and have been Christians for some time. Uh, they were well trained in religious practices. We, we see that based on the, the fact that the writer alludes to it. They have a well, good understanding of, of baptism, of laying on the hands and so forth. Um, he, he references a lot of things in terms of the temple and the priests. So they had a, a very strong understanding of that background. They're under intense persecution, causing many forms of suffering. We, we gather that based on, um, especially in Hebrews 6, and then again in Hebrews 12, as we'll get to in a few weeks, um, what's happening in their lives, what they're experiencing. And so for a, a Jew in Jerusalem that became a Christian, he was ostracized by everybody. So people wouldn't buy goods from them, nor will they sell them goods. And so the Christians in Jerusalem were extremely poor. Their family businesses would have gone in the tank when they became saved. They maybe have lost and ostracized by their own family members, be it their parents, maybe their wife or their husband, their children. Um, whoever, you know, their family might have ostracized them when they became a Christian, when they, they entered into the faith. So uh, we read about in Acts how Paul started the Jerusalem Fund where he would go to the Gentile churches, raise money, and then deliver that money to the church in Jerusalem. And, and that was a really a great idea because in, in part it was you know, helping to support the church, church of Jerusalem, but it also in a long way to um, establishing relations between the Gentile Christians and the Jewish Christians. Because for a Jew, his entire life, Gentiles would have been considered dogs. They would be considered less than people. So it was really helpful for them to, to benefit from that Jerusalem fund. These people were passionate about God, but there are others that were indifferent towards God. We, we, we gather that from the warnings and different warnings that uh, the writer expressed. They are also struggling with their faith. And as we'll see, this really is the great theme of, of, of Hebrews. But these are people that were struggling. They're wondering, is it worth the cost? Is it worth what we're doing? Is it worth this, you know, this pressure? And, and, and what do we believe and what do we understand about it? So what the book of Hebrews was written really for was helping believers to believe what they profess to believe. Helping them to live the way they believe or what they profess to believe. So when they, they say that Jesus is enough, now it's a matter of actually applying that. And so it's helping them to, to believe and live what they profess to believe. And you know what? I look at the church today and I think, what a, what a perfect message. You know, for a lot of people in the church, we are very informed about God, but our, our lives don't match that. And so we, we get up on Sunday morning and say, God is my all in, my all in all. He's going to look after me. He's going to take care of me. And then we go home and we fret and we worry or we scheme and we strive and we struggle. And we're not really sure about what we just sang on the Sunday morning. 
or we see it in another believer and we might encourage them and yet those very words really could have been spoken to us. And some, I mean, I know I've said sometimes when I counsel people, I say something to someone and then Father says, and that's for you too. I'm like, yeah, I needed to hear that as well. And so this book really was written to get believers to live as they believe they ought to and believe they can. And so that's, that's a great part of this book and why I think it's so practical and so applicable to, to today. So there's a major theme in this book of Hebrews then. Uh, one particular theme that stands out. Anyone remember what it was? Jesus is better. It, time and time again, this was the theme that the writer of Hebrews kept coming back to. In fact, if we could uh, loosely break up the structure of the book of Hebrews, you would say, you know, and I say loosely because sometimes we go too far with trying to compartmentalize Scripture and, and, uh, and theology. Uh, but if you could loosely uh, break up the book, the, roughly the first nine and a half to ten chapters is about Jesus is better and how he's better than, than anyone or anything or, or any, any, any other item out there. Jesus is the better one. And so the result of that then is to live by faith. And then the last four, four and a half chapters is then about living by faith, about trusting in Jesus that Jesus would live in and through us. That upon our reliance and dependence upon Him, we could then live and, and actually do what we profess to believe. So time and time again, Jesus is better, so live by faith. This is really the main theme of the book of Hebrews. And we saw that going through the first seven chapters uh, as we're about to review. And then again, we saw it, we'll, we'll see it as we go on for the next five weeks. Does that make sense? So we're going to drill this into your heads. Jesus is better, so live by faith. Now there are, there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And this is where it's important to understand who the book is written to. Because if you don't understand who the book is written to, then you're not going to understand the warnings. You're either going to figure, well, that's not for me, or you're going to misinterpret the warning. But the warnings are written to the readers. And the readers being Christians means it's also warnings for who? For us. And there are, there are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. And if you wanted to kind of group them, the first three warnings could be grouped together. They're all very similar. They're all um, just slightly different approaches to the same one. But I think they build to a point where we get to that third warning. It's probably the, the, the most significant of those three. And then we have then the last two warnings, the fourth and fifth warning. You could probably group those two together because they also are very similar. And again, you see that pattern of growing from that fourth warning to the fifth warning. So let's briefly go over the, the, the five different warnings. So the first warning we saw was in Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4, where the writer warned us not to neglect your salvation. The, the imagery was, um, you know, the, you're standing on a, uh, on a boat and as you're in this boat, you're drifting by the dock. And the dock is there. All you need to do is reach out and grab hold of it. Just put your hands on it and you are then anchored, you are safe, you are sound. But you're just sitting there and you're drifting in your boat and you're, you're letting your opportunity drift by. Because you're neglecting your salvation. And that's the warning that um, 
that the writer is warning us against. And that is true for the unbeliever. There are people, I mean, the salvation gospel is out to people. It's there. All they need to do is lay hold of it. Take hold. Jesus has come to, to give you life. And, and he wants to live in you. It's out there and they need to lay hold of it. But the unbeliever is refusing to. And so in that case, they are drifting by. But it's also applicable to you and I as Christians. Because, you see, salvation is far more than just going to heaven one day. I mean, God didn't come and, and send His Son to die on a cross just to make sure you had a good location in the future. It was about right now. It was about to have a relationship with you and I that He could live, actually live, be alive in you and I today. And so for some Christians, that's drifting by them. They're not laying hold of the fact that Christ is alive today, living in them. And so they're neglecting their salvation. It, their salvation has, in essence, become something that they put on the shelf. And then, you know, when they go to heaven, they'll pull it off the shelf and use it then. But in the meantime, it's up on the shelf while they're living their life. And so God is kind of up here, out there, instead of really living inside of us. And so that's what the warning is, to, to grab hold of this salvation. Make it applicable. Use it. It's, it's for us today. Does that make sense? Is that ringing any bells for people that were here? Okay. Uh, the next one then, we saw in chapters 3, verse 12 to 4, verse 13, was to not miss out on the rest of God. And so here the, the writer of Hebrews uses the, the story of the children of Israel as they cross from Egypt through the wilderness and into the, into the promised land. And Canaan is that picture of rest. And our hymnology, unfortunately, the theology that we've developed through our hymns, has taught us that Canaan is a picture of heaven. And that's not the case. Canaan is not a picture of heaven. Canaan is a picture of our life in Christ today. It's the picture of the abundant life that Jesus came to give us today. And so we can enter in that, not when we physically die, but we can enter in now. We can enter in today. And that's the warning, not to miss out in Canaan. Don't spend your life in the wilderness, because that's not what God intended for you and I. Get over, cross the Jordan River, and enter into the land of abundance. And the illustration he uses then is the story of the children of Israel when they stopped at Manasseh and Meribah. They, this is the, the, the children of Israel were known for grumbling. They were known for complaining. And it was shortly after they had seen the ten plagues. They'd seen how God had rescued them. How Moses raised his arms, split the Red Sea, and the children of Israel were able to cross along dry ground, only to turn back and see all of Pharaoh's army utterly destroyed when they got a bath. Uh, when the waters came crushing down, they had the, the fire by night to keep them warm, the, the cloud by day to, to keep them cool. They had all these signs and wonders that they could visibly see about the hand of God upon their lives. And they get to Massa Meribah, and they're wondering then about what life is like there. And, and how, you know, they're thirsty and they're, they're hungry. And then they start wondering, you know, is God going to give us some water? Does God really care? And then they ask the question, is God really among us? And what a, what a great question they ask there. Because it's a question I think a lot of Christians ask. You know, a lot of Christians come to me and they say, I feel so alone. Is God really here? Is He really among us? Does He really care? And their attitude is, well, if He's not, then it's up to me. 
I need to make life work here. I need to somehow pull this together. I can't rely and trust upon God because He's not here, and therefore I trust myself. And that's how we miss out on the rest of God. Instead of living out of His life, we're living out of our own flesh. And so the warning is don't miss out on the rest. Then the third warning is the big warning. This is the one in Hebrews 6 where the warning is that um, uh, if uh, we're not careful, it will be impossible to renew them to, again to repentance. And so in Hebrews 6, in verses 4 to 6, that is, you know, some have said the most debated passage in all the New Testament. It is the one where they've had, you know, countless different interpretations of it and so many debates over it. And so we looked at three of the main possible um, conclusions you can come to this. One is, it's talking about the possibility of losing your salvation. But we dismiss that because of the numerous scripture verses that, that you know, testify to the security of the believer. And so for us to accept the fact that Hebrews 6 is saying you can lose your salvation would mean that we would have to throw out so many other verses. And we know the whole scripture agrees with itself. And so you can't just you know, have them in contradiction. So we threw that one out. The next one was that they are talk, this is a warning to people who are in the church but not actually saved. So people who profess to be Christians but don't actually possess the life of Christ. And we looked at the possibility that, well, it's not a possibility, that the fact that there are. There are many people who profess to be Christians but are not. Uh, think about Matthew 7, when, when Jesus says that people will come to Him in Judgment Day and say, Lord, Lord, look at all the works and wonders that we've done in Your name. And then what's Jesus' response to them? Depart from Me, for I never knew You. I didn't know You at all. And so here was a group of people who professed to be Christians, but never knew God. They never possessed Him. And so that's a sad, scary reality, that there are people out here. However, when we looked at the, the actual wording, it didn't imply that. The actual text would imply that, that the writer was addressing actual Christians. So we dismissed that as a possibility. The third possibility then was the one where the writer was present, uh, presenting in an impossible scenario in order to build a case that you can't lose your salvation. And it was based on some logic argument and so forth. Uh, but again, we dismiss that because it didn't fit the context of the passage. For the writer to suddenly jump into a discussion about the possibility of losing your salvation, or more specifically, the impossibility of losing your salvation, didn't really make sense. It didn't fit the context. Instead, the context of the passage is all about maturity. He says, you ought to be teachers by now. You ought to be mature. Instead, you guys are, are on milk. I can't give you solid food. You are baby Christians. And the maturity here isn't talking about you know, the length of years and number, number of Bible studies they've had, but it's a spiritual maturity. It's an understanding. And he says, you, couldn't, you can't understand the mature things right now because you're, you're, you're choking on the meat because you're so used to baby food. But the warning is, if you don't go on to maturity, if you don't press on to maturity, then the danger is Father may just let you stay in your diapers. He may leave you just in the state that you're in as baby Christians. And what a waste. What a waste of this time on earth. This is the only time you and I have right now to make a difference on this planet. And for us to fritter that away 
on the, the baby things of Christianity and, and get caught on the ABCs and not going on to maturity is, is a great warning. And so, you know, those first three are about, you know, laying hold, grabbing hold of your salvation, entering into the rest of God, pressing on in growth and growing on in maturity. Now, the next two warnings, the fourth and fifth warnings, then become what we're going to look at later on. The, the, this one in Hebrews 10, this is probably the second most debated passage. But this one is don't trample the gospel. And we'll get into that in more detail in a few weeks. And then the fifth warning, do not deny the gospel, which is in chapter 12. And again, we'll, we'll discuss that when we get there. So let's just, again, quickly go through these uh, first seven chapters then. So Jesus is better is the theme. And so what the author of, he- of Hebrews is doing is he's going to bring all these different contenders up, all these great heroes of the Jewish faith, and show how Jesus is better than all of them. It's not that he is uh, dismissing or, or lessening the impact and value of these people. He's really just trying to exalt how much greater Jesus is. And so the first one in Hebrews 1 verses uh, 1 to 3, he brings the prophets up. So that would be Isaiah and Ezekiel and uh, Nathan and um, uh, Elijah and Elisha and so forth. And all the great prophets. But the answer between who's better is Jesus. And the reason that Jesus is better is because where the prophets were, dis- were, um, were passing on the message of God, Jesus was the message. Jesus, it says, was the exact representation of God. So, whereas the prophets could only tell you about God, Jesus, being God, could show us and really relate to us who God is. And so, Jesus is better than the prophets because He is God. He's, he's, the, he's the real thing. The next one then went on to talk about, in verses 4 to 13, it was Jesus versus the angels. And so here, Jesus was better than the angels because Jesus is, is the Son, whereas the angels are the servants. And the Son, no matter what, is always going to be better than the servants. I have a friend of mine who's, uh, whose parents, they, they manage and own a, a coffee shop, a Williams. And my friend is the, the son of this, and so he's one of the store managers. Well, one day, one of the employees got really upset and frustrated with with the store manager. And so she decided to go to his dad to complain to him about him, hoping that somehow he could get his, you know, get the son fired. And, you know, I was talking to my friend about it. and We were kind of laughing. We're thinking, don't you know who this guy is? He's not going to fire the son. I mean, it wasn't. I mean, it may be a different story if the son was delinquent or something, but. But that wasn't the case. And there's simply no way that the father is going to fire the son because of one employee. And so there's a greater affinity because the son is greater than the servant. And so we see Jesus is better than the angels because he's the son. The next then was Jesus versus Moses. Maybe one of the top three characters of the Old Testament. Right up there with Abraham and David and Moses. And you could argue who would be the greatest. Um, you wouldn't really accomplish anything coming up who is the greatest, but you know, just simply put, Moses is one of the greatest characters of the Old Testament of the Jewish faith, and Jesus is better. Again, nothing wrong with Moses. It says that in verses 5 and 6 that Moses was faithful with what he was entitled to, what he was given. He was faithful within the house of God, where he was a servant. But Jesus is the master over the house, so he is greater than Moses as well. 
Then next, beginning in 3.7 to 4.14, it was Jesus versus Joshua, the great warrior of Israel, the, the man that led them into Israel, into the promised land. But Jesus is better because He offers a better rest. And then after that uh, brief um, aside that He goes through in Hebrews 5 and 6 about uh, going on to maturity, He comes back and says, Jesus is better than Aaron. And the reason that Jesus is better than Aaron is because Jesus has a better priesthood. And so this is where we started to get into the meat of the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is compared to, uh, to, in terms of his order of his priesthood, is compared to that of Melchizedek. Melchizedek being the king of Salem and the high priest of God during the time of Abraham. In fact, Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, and then being king of Salem means king of peace. So he's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. That's the order in which Jesus has in terms of his high priest. And so Jesus is better than Aaron because whereas Aaron, he could never be king. The king was coming through the tribe of Judah. All the high priests were coming through the tribe of Levi. You would never have a king who was the high priest. If you, you had one king who tried to be the high priest. And God thought so wonderful of his, uh, his ingenuity and his ambition that he decided to strike him with leprosy. So you would never have a king serving as a high priest, nor would you have a high priest serving as king. But Jesus, being a different priest altogether and of a different order, he is king and he is the high priest. So he's a better priest than Aaron was. And so where we left off then in Hebrews 7 was on that topic. And really what I hope you see and discover is that these first seven chapters basically of the book of Hebrews is all introduction. It was all just the, the, the starting point. You know, now we're getting into the meat. Now we're getting into the depths of it. Because now we're going to start to get into really what's interesting about it. So, part one, that was introduction. Part two, you're here for the good stuff. How's that sound? Everyone with me? Alright, so let's, let's start then in Hebrews 7, verse 11. The writer says, Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood... For on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? What he's saying here was that there was something wrong with the old covenant. There was something wrong with the law, which is why there needed to be another priesthood. Now, what page are we on? Um, This isn't on a page yet. We're going to... We're going to get to that page in one second. But what, what he's talking about here is this need for a, a different law. And the reason being is, verse 12, for when the priesthood is changed, the necessity there takes place, uh, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. And where we left off with last time was, was just beginning to look at this, this idea that it's not... God introduced the law, and because of the law, He introduced and implemented the priesthood of Aaron. Instead, God implemented the priesthood of Aaron, and then as a result of that was the law. Meaning, priesthood, you know, trumped the law. Therefore, when Jesus is uh, implemented or introduced as a new priest, what happens to the covenant? To the law. Well, it's trumped. It's set aside. 
And so the changing of the priesthood necessitates the changing of the law. And another word to understand the law here is covenant. And this is where I want to put on the brakes. And we're going to just stop right now and look at covenant. In fact, it was when I was thinking about what to, what to study uh, at the beginning of, uh, of this year and maybe even towards the end of last year, what drew me to the book of Hebrews was the, the fact that we were going to be able to study covenant. Because really, you know, we have no clue in the West about covenant. I mean, we talk about covenant, we say it's like a contract. And, and that's kind of like saying roast beef is like craft dinner. It, or it's like a hot dog. Or, I mean, it just, it really doesn't compare. They are such poor substitutes in trying to, to make an analogy towards it. And, and yet we really don't have a clue as to what a covenant is. But what makes this so significant is the, the Bible is a book of covenant. It's written in the covenant language. It's written for people who understand covenants. Meaning, if you don't understand covenants... And, and or understand what a covenant is, then you won't have an understanding really of what the Bible is trying to get at. We we have elements of it as as we'll go through it. You'll see there's there's uh, reminders in our in our culture in our history of it. But I think we've forgotten about what covenants really are about. But it's so important. I mean, think about it. The Bible is broken up into two parts. What are the two parts? We say Old Testament, New Testament, but Testament is just another word for covenant. And so it's broken up, Old Covenant, New Covenant. But you see, when we start to understand covenant and we start to read the Bible, then the Bible takes on a whole deeper meaning. Because there are, there are so many things in there that are, are using covenant words, but we don't, don't recognize them as covenant words. But the people who is written to did. And so the writer didn't need to explain covenant because they already understood covenant. But you and I, we don't. So what I want to do is take the time is to understand the significance of this covenant. And, and begin to understand really what the, the, uh, the results, the power that is wrapped up in the fact that this is a covenant that we have with God. Here's a quote on page 34 that I thought would be good to start our study on covenant written by a guy named James L. Garlow. He says, From my studies, I discovered some remarkable insights. For one thing, understanding the steps of covenant-making ceremony and its role in human history causes many Bible verses to spring to life with meanings that may not have been previously considered. Looking closer, I found that in many ways, the covenant is the foundation of our faith and the epicenter of what we understand about our relationship with God. Upon it is based our understanding of salvation, holiness, Healing, worship, deliverance, and sanctification. The covenant is truly foundational, and discovering this can be exhilarating, even life-changing. What co covenant will do, and this is what I hope for, for you and myself, is it really strengthens and emboldens our faith. Because when you understand what the covenant is saying, what the covenant's about, now you have something rock-solid to put your faith in. See, the thing about God is that God is a covenant God. He's made a covenant with you and I. And what He's asking us now is to trust Him in that covenant. And as from a simple picture of David, David did that. Think about when David uh, went to go and fight uh, Goliath. 
David shows up. He's this little 16-year-old runt of a boy. And he's really tiny. Because remember when he went to go put on Saul's armor, armor to fight Goliath? He was swimming in it. So he wasn't this big strapping kid. He was this little runt of a man who walks up, shows up at the army of Israel's camp, and he sees the entire army of Israel once a day doing what? Cowering. Cowering. Terrified. Shaking. Really ashamed because each and every day this giant, nine foot tall giant, probably 350 or something, 350 pounds, shows up and just embarrasses, humiliates, threatens, scares, terrifies this army of people, challenging them to a fight. And then David's sitting there, and Scripture says, he says, this uncircumcised Philistine is attacking my people, my God. And you read through it, and you don't think much of it, but the very fact that he says this uncircumcised Philistine shows that David is thinking covenant. Because the sign of the covenant for the Jews was circumcision. And so what David was saying to this guy is, this giant, Goliath, I don't care how big he is. He's not in the covenant. He's outside covenant. You and I, were inside covenant, he's saying to the other Jews. We've got God in our sides. This uncircumcised uh, Philistine doesn't. So why do we have to be afraid of him? In fact, I'll fight him. So it wasn't that David was confident in his abilities. It wasn't that David knew, I've fought lions and bears, how bad can Goliath be? It wasn't that he knew he was a crack shot with a slingshot. It was the fact that he knew that he was in covenant with God. And he was relying upon that fact, this uncircumcised Philistine. And that's what provided him faith. That's why he was willing to go out and fight Goliath, and he wasn't scared. Because he knew the covenant. He knew God was on his side. And so that's what this writer is talking about. It's exhilarating and even life-changing. When we start to get a sense of what covenant's about, what's in the covenant, what was, what's available and what's been given to us, then you and I can go out into this world and recognize the uncircumcised Philistine that up, we're up against. And say, I've got the covenant, I've got Jesus, and now I'm going to put my faith in that and begin to step out in that. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at some of the rituals of this blood covenant. And, and it's called a blood covenant because that was, that was really the strongest form of covenant was whenever blood was involved. And, and that was, that's something that is still practiced today over in the Middle East uh, or even in Eastern cultures. Uh, in the West, not so much. We have it a little bit, but it's much stronger out West or out in the Eastern parts of the world. But I remember as a kid, there's there something called Blood Brothers. Remember that? Where you, you, know, you, you know, slice your finger and then you, you, your friend would slice your finger and you would kind of mix your blood together. That was a blood covenant. You're entering into a covenant with another person. And that, that strength of the blood, that's where life is really being transferred. That's what it was about. It was entering into a life covenant with another person. In fact, it's so strong that in the East they have a saying that says that uh, uh, blood is thicker than milk. See, we have it in our, our society, in our thinking, you know, blood is thicker than water in the sense that our, familiar, our friends aren't as significant as our family. So my brother, I have a closer bond to my brother than I would a friend. But in the East, they say blood is thicker than milk, meaning if I enter into a covenant with somebody, that relationship now trumps 
the relationship I have with my family. Because with my brother, we shared milk. We shared the same breast milk with our mother. And so I have a connection, but the covenant that I enter in with someone else trumps that. So I will, because of that covenant, be willing to even turn my back on my brother if that's what's necessary. So this idea of blood covenant is very, very strong. And is really, it's throughout the Old and New Testament. In fact, the Old Covenant is about blood covenant, and the New Testament is about blood covenant. It's a blood-based economy here. So let's start to understand some of the rituals then that are in the covenant. Now, the rituals in and of themselves aren't what's important. It's, uh, these rituals are just simple signs and symbols. It has nothing to do with what's the actual power of it. So some of the blood coven- uh, some blood covenants would have all these rituals. Other blood covenants would have very few of these rituals. It wasn't about the rituals. It's sort of like today. It's not about baptism in terms of did you get dunked in water? Did you get poured on? Did you get sprinkled? Did you get hit by a fire hose or a water pistol? That doesn't really matter. It really doesn't. It's what the sign or symbol is pointing to. And so in the same case, these rituals aren't what matter. It's what the rituals are pointing to that counts. And that's what the covenant's about. Does that make sense? So in understanding the rituals, then we can understand the significance and power of the covenant. So let's understand them a little bit. The first one there is that there is an exchange of robes. And so what would happen, imagine there was two tribes, and two tribes are going to enter into covenant. So tribe A and tribe B would decide to enter into covenant, and what they would do is there would be an exchange of their robes, and that was to signify their identity. The fact that now tribe A is really a part of tribe B, and tribe B is a part of tribe A. They're one and the same now. And so I would would kind of put on... um, the other tribe, or at least the head would, the representative would put on the other tribe's cloak so that when you saw the person, you thought, well, that, you know, the face looks like tribe A, but the clothes look like tribe B. That was the point. They're now saying, we're one. And so there's an exchange of identity in there. For some of them, what they would do to really, you know, strengthen this fact of changing identity is that they would sometimes pour their blood into a cup uh, they might slit their wrists and they would you know, put blood into the cup and they'd mix the two blood together and then they would both drink the blood. And, and again, it's that exchanging of identity. They're ingesting the other person now. They're ingesting their life. And so it was, it was a very strong declaration now of this exchanging of identity. Uh, another one would be the exchange of goods. So tribe A and tribe B would, would exchange what they have. In... Um, in West Africa, below the Sahara, Sahara Desert, um, in uh, long ago, in ancient times, what they would do is, is one tribe would be rich in gold. They have all kinds of gold. They would literally be, their, their tribe would be on a gold mine. Whereas another tribe, they didn't have any gold, but they had all kinds of salt mines. Now, for you and I, salt doesn't mean a whole lot. But back then, salt was just as valuable as gold. In fact, have you ever heard the saying, um, that person's not worth their salt, or worth their weight in salt? And that's because salt used to have incredible value, because what salt would do is it would allow you to preserve your food, because they didn't have fridges, be it upright, freezers, bar fridges, they didn't have that. They had no way to preserve their food except through heavy amounts of salt. And so salt, for a lot of people, was in, in great demand, especially if it wasn't nearby. And so what two tribes would do 
if they would come along together and say, well, we got no gold, but, you ha- but we have lots of salt. And you have no salt, but you have lots of gold. So let's make a covenant where we can exchange our goods. We do this today with, between countries. We call it a free trade agreement. It's a similar idea where we enter into a covenant with one another, where we can exchange goods with the idea that now we're, we're stronger between the two of us. But the idea behind the covenant is now what is mine belongs to you, and what belongs to you now become, belongs to me. And so if two people were going to a, into, into covenant, you know, if Marco and I, for example, went into covenant and we had this idea of exchange of goods, that means I could walk into Marco's house and say, you know, what, I like that shirt and I could just take the shirt. I wouldn't even have to ask Marco for the shirt. I would just take it. And Marco wouldn't say, what you doing? Because Marco would know we're, on, we're in covenant together. And so I would just take his shirt. He'd walk into my closet and think, I don't want any of that stuff and walk out. But that's what we could do. We would be in this exchange of covenant because there's, there's an exchange of goods. We, uh, we even see this today when we, when we get married. And marriage is probably the, the one blood covenant that, that really still remains today. When you entered into marriage, you entered into a blood covenant. We may not recognize it as such, but marriage really is a blood covenant. It's a covenant. When, when, when Viard and I got married, that means that everything that belonged to me then now belonged to her. And everything that belonged to her now belonged to me. So we had a joint bank account. And so out of the deal, I got a grand piano. She got smelly hockey equipment. I know, I know. She got the better end of the deal. But hey, it's all fair, right? So what's mine is hers, what hers is mine. There's an exchange of goods. Another part would be the exchange of weapons. And what they're declaring here then is my strength is your strength, your strength is my strength. And also, your enemy is my enemy and my enemy is yours. And so what was happening now with this exchange of weapons, they would take off their weapon belt, where their sword or their arrows or whatever, their knives were, and they would place it on the other person and vice versa. And so they're, they're going through this ritual. They're putting on each other's weapons, exchanging of strengths, but also exchanging of enemies. Now, you can understand then, if you had a really strong nation, powerful in weapons, but short on goods... Versus a nation that was strong on goods but short on weapons. Do you think they'd ever enter into covenant? Well, they could, theoretically, because they could say, we'll give you the the, the protection, you give us the goods. But it didn't work that way. Because they would just go and take it. Because, see, if they took the goods, then they didn't have to share everything. They just, it all belonged to them. But the moment they entered into covenant, then everything they had belonged to the other group as well. So you would never get a strong tribe making an agreement with a weak tribe. Or rarely would get that, at least. It was generally, strength would, would agree with strength, or weakness would agree with weakness. But rarely would you get weak and strong going into covenant, because the strong would just run over the weak. Uh, often there would be a sacrifice. Uh, whether it would be um, some form of animal, uh, a lamb or a ram or whatever, they would take a, an animal of some sort and they would, um, they would sacrifice this animal. And, and the reason being is that blood was necessary, blood was required. Uh, how many people remember the movie Not Without My Daughter? Sally Field? It's an old movie. I was trying to think of it as, it was 80s, I'm guessing. 
Um, it was, it, it's a movie about a woman named Sally Field who's an American married to an Iranian. And uh, they have a child who was born in America, and then they go over to Iran for just a little visit. And then when it's time to go home, the dad says, I'm not going home and neither is my daughter. And so this, the movie's about now Sally Field's character you know, leaving not without her daughter, hence the title. But there, in the opening scenes in the movie, when she shows up in Iran, she's in the taxi cab and she's, she's traveling home to, the, um, to her husband's family home. And the crowd is there. They're all excited to see this hero who's come home from America. And they're all chanting and hollering and, and screaming, throwing flowers on. And then she gets out of the taxi, out of the car. And right before her, they take a goat or a lamb and they slice its throat and this blood begins to spread out on the streets. How many people wish I brought that clip and showed the clip? <laughs> yeah, they might. Good. There's somebody else here. Why not? Why would you want that? Because what's blood? It's what does blood represent? Death. But that's not the case. It represents death to us, but in the Eastern mindset, not at all. Remember the verse in the Old Testament that said, "The life of the flesh is in the blood." So to them, blood doesn't represent death. Blood represents life. And so what they were doing, they were, they were slaughtering the sacrifice. They were, it was an honor. They were pouring life out to this person. And then she would have to walk over the sacrifice. She would step over. And they were, you know, it was a welcoming covenant for this person, for, uh, for Sally Field's character. But she was grossed out by it because she was thinking death. But the reality is it's a life. And so when they're making this sacrifice, they're pouring out life. They're saying this is a covenant to life. This is not a death covenant. This is a life covenant because blood represents life. But what they would do then sometimes is they would take the animals and they'd create a pathway. And it was a pathway of blood. And they, then the two covenant partners, or at least the two representatives of the tribes, would walk together along this path. And while walking together along this path, they were entering into that covenant now. Sometimes they would make a figure eight with the animals. And, and so they would walk this figure eight pattern, kind of showing no beginning and no end. Or they do a circle, no end and no beginning to it. It just keeps going on. And it's to show that this covenant doesn't end. It's a covenant for as long as we're alive. It's a covenant to life. And so they would need this sacrifice, they need this blood. And, and so the, the blood of the animal was, was a representation of their own blood. But again, sometimes what they would do is they would cut themselves. In fact, there, there are some tribes, even to today, what they do is they cut themselves, and then they go and they put gunpowder in the open wound. <laughs> How many people wish I brought a video of that now, right? <laughs> I got my guys with me tonight. So we, they, they'd slice it up and they would put the gunpowder in there. And the reason being is they wanted it to scar up. They wanted a big scar. They didn't want it to you know, heal nicely with you know, no stitch, just glue it together with bandages on it. They wanted it to be, to be big and noticeable because that was a declaration. They could pull, peel back their sleeve if they had one and say, this is the covenant I made with, with Jim, this is the covenant I made with Bob, and this is the covenant that happened with this tribe. And they'd have reminders. And that was important to them. And so this, this blood covenant was, was a picture of life. They would have the walk of death, what we just talked about, basically saying to them, if you break this covenant, then this is what's going to happen to you. If you break the covenant, it's going to result in death. And, and this was very serious to people. They would, they would not mess around with covenants. 
you would, you would really, really be you know, taking your life into your own hands by breaking a covenant. Because the thinking was, if I break a covenant, I am gonna have, I'm going to be cursed by God. God's going to come after me. But not only that, other people in my family will come after me. They will turn me in if I'm a covenant breaker. And so I'm not willing to do that because I don't even bring shame on myself. I bring shame on other people, even other people that I've made covenants with. So the idea of breaking a covenant was, was just ridiculous. People just did not entertain that thought because the cost was so high. But in our thinking, we don't have that same value on covenants. That's where we think of it as contracts. Well, contracts can easily be broken, amended, changed, ripped up, forgotten. But covenants were not. Hence the reason they had that marking. You can't forget a marking like that, that scar. It doesn't go away. There would be a pronouncement of blessing and curses. And so afterwards, they would, they would get up and they would pronounce to everybody, you know, the blessings, the results, really the terms of the covenant. So we're exchanging goods. This will happen if you honor the covenant. But if you break the covenant, this will happen to you over and over and over again. There's a, there's a great picture of this in the, uh, in the Old Testament where Moses instructs the, the children of Israel when they get into the promised land, they're to go to a place where these, these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And that they're going to have half of the group on one mountain and the other half on the other mountain. And what they're going to do is on one side of the mountain, it's uh, Mount Gerizim, which is a very lush and fertile ground. They're going to pronounce all the blessings. So if they honor the covenant, if they do what God said, that they want, what he wants them to do, then this will happen. But on the other one, Mount Ebal, it's a wasteland. It's very barren. And they pronounced all the curses that was going to come upon them if they break the covenant. And so they had this great visual picture. If you honor the covenant, everything's going to go well. If you don't honor the covenant, you're in a world of trouble. And they had these two mountains. In fact, if you go there today, you still see one is the dry wasteland. The other is very fertile. And so they had this pronouncement of blessing and curses. And then they would share a covenant meal together. And this was a way to, to seal the deal. It was a way to celebrate together. And it was also this picture because they would take the animals they would sacrifice and that would then form the meal. And so remember that animal was a, was a substitute to represent their life that was being poured out. And now they're ingesting that. So I'm ingesting you, you're ingesting me. And there's this, this trade-off here. You can see this, you know, to some degree in our, in our wedding vows, in our wedding ceremony. Um, we don't do the physical marking of our bodies. We're a little grossed out by that. But we wear wedding rings. And it's to serve the same purpose. It's to be the reminder that I'm married. Uh, we have a, a meal afterwards, after the wedding feast, in the celebration. Uh, the walk of death, you can, you know, loosely translate that to the walk of the aisle. Um, I'll leave that to you to exchange, go further on, right? There's the exchange of goods, the exchange of weapons. All right, I'm, I'm missing, there's, there's one more, and I'm, I'm, I don't have it on here yet. Uh, but then the final one is there's an exchange of names. I don't know if that's in your notes. Is that in your notes, exchange of names? And so what would happen if tribe A and tribe B then enter into covenant, then they would forever be known as tribe AB or tribe BA. So they, they take on the name of the other tribe. And again, we, we see this in our, in our wedding, right? In the marriage ceremony. 
where Viarda, Viarda was Viarda Donner, and then she married me, and now she's forever known as Viarda Gilbert. She took on my name. And so she's now, and I, we're one. We're one in, together. Uh, so in some, some cultures, they, they share the, the husband and wife. They take on each other's name. In our culture, generally, the husband keeps his, and the wife takes, takes her husband's name. Uh, but there's that coming together, the exchange of names. There's a great story and picture of this in the story of Abram. Remember, it's Abram, that's how he was born, and then he became Abraham. And what God did is he took his own name. His name, the last sound of his name was Jehovah, ah, that A-H sound. And so what God did is he took his name, you know, we could sort of say that was his initials, it was the last part of his name, and he put that into Abraham, and it became, instead of Abram, Abraham has his God sound his name in there. And Sarai became Sarah. So God put his name into them. But here's the cool part. Did you ever notice this? I never noticed this before until, until my study on covenant. After that, he was now known as who? The God of Abraham. So God not only gave his name to Abram, but he took Abraham's name unto himself. And then that covenant deal went on to Isaac, and, the, and to, sorry, to, to Jacob, and then it went on to, sorry, to Isaac and then to Jacob. And so he is now known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so he had taken on this name. This is our God. He's not ashamed of us, willing to enter into covenant with you and I. And then finally, the, the strength of a covenant. Again, I mentioned briefly, you would never break a covenant. That was just just something that was um, uh, just unthought of because of all the curses that you would bring upon yourselves. But it was, it was a now you're breaking your word and you would never want to be labeled a covenant breaker. And there's a great picture and story of this in, in Joshua chapter 9. This is uh, the story where the children of Israel, they've, they've entered into the land of Canaan now, and, and God has given them their marching orders. What are their marching orders? Yeah, go, you are in the land of many ites, go and kill all the ites you find. Utterly wipe them off the face of the earth, right? Canaanites, Amorites, all the Hittites, all the ites that are in this land, kill them. That's your command. And so they've done that when they took down Jericho. They learned the first defeat, but then they took care of Ai. And they're, they're going through things. And now word's beginning to spread throughout all Canaan that Israel's here and you're in trouble. And so the Gibeonites get worried. And they're not that far from, from where Joshua is right now. They're just kind of over the hill and around the corner. And so they decide to send an envoy to, to, uh, to Joshua so that they can enter into a covenant where they would be allies now. But they know that they can't you know, just show up and make a covenant because they understand that they're on the hit list. And so they decide to play a ruse. They get this envoy and dress them up in really old, ragged clothes. Give them bread that's three or four days old so that when they make their journey, just you know, around the corner and over the hill to Joshua, it would appear that they've come not just from around the corner over the hill, but from a long way off from a faraway land. And so they show up dragging their feet, low on water, stale bread. They say, we've heard about what your God has done for Egypt. 
and when you're in the wilderness. They leave out Jericho and Ai. Because if they mention that, they would be giving themselves away that they're local. So they only give the ancient history of what's happened, the old history. And they say, we've heard what your God has done. We would want to enter into covenant with you. And Joshua, not even asking God once, just says, great. And he enters into covenant. Maybe performed a lot of those same rituals that we did. Maybe he took off his belt. Maybe they exchanged robes. But what he was declaring in that moment is, I am you, you are me. I will do you no harm, you will do me no more harm. I will protect you from your enemy as you will protect me from my enemy. That was the covenant they went into. And the Gibeonites went home, over the hill, around the corner. One day, Joshua's going out for a walk. Goes up a hill, looks around, walks around the corner, and guess who he sees? Hey, Joshua, come on in. This is our home. We we didn't mention this. We're neighbors. We all, it slipped our minds. And Joshua all of a sudden realized he just made a covenant with the people that God has commanded him to kill. But now he's got a problem. Because to do that means he has to break his covenant. So he goes to God and he says, God, what's happened? What do I do? And God, being a God of covenant, says, I will not break my word, and I will not let you break your word because you are now representing me. And so, honor the covenant. You will not hurt them. You will not kill them. Instead, you will make them servants, and they will be hewers of wood for you, but you will not utterly destroy them. And so he had to leave the Gibeonites intact. Because even though God had commanded to get rid of all the ites, God was not willing to break his covenant. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that assuring to know, especially as we go on, to know that our God will not break a covenant? This message was recorded by Crossways to Life. It is the desire of Crossways to Life to know Jesus deeper and disciple Christians to experience life in Him through the message of the cross. For more information about our ministry, upcoming courses and events, or how to contact us, please visit our website at www.crosswaystolife.org.